Chapter Nine, Part Two of The Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Nine: The Philippics, Part Two. In February, the ambassadors returned, but returned laden with bad tidings. Servius Sulpicius, who was to have been their chief spokesman, died just as they reached Antony. The other two immediately began to treat with him, so as to become the bearers back to Rome of conditions proposed by him. This was exactly what they had been told not to do. They had carried the orders of the Senate to their rebellious officer, and then admitted the authority of that rebel by bringing back his propositions. They were not even allowed to go into Mutina so as to see Decimus. But they were in truth only too well in accord with the majority of the Senate whose hearts were with Antony. Anything to those lovers of their fishponds was more desirable than a return to the loyalty of the Republic. The deputies were received by the Senate, who discussed their embassy, and on the next day they met again when Cicero pronounced his eighth Philippic. Why he did not speak on the previous day, I do not know. Middleton is somewhat confused in his account. Morabin says that Cicero was not able to obtain a hearing when the deputies were received. The Senate did on that occasion come to a decision against which act of pusillanimity Cicero on the following day expressed himself very vehemently. They had decided that this was not to be called a war, but rather a tumult, and seemed to have hesitated in denouncing Antony as a public enemy. The Senate was convoked on the next day to decide the terms of the amnesty to be accorded to the soldiers who had followed Antony, when Cicero, again throwing aside the minor matter, burst upon them in his wrath. He had hitherto inveighed against Antony. Now his anger is addressed to the Senate. Lucius Caesar, he says, has told us that he is Antony's uncle and must vote as such. Are you all uncles to Antony? Then he goes on to show that war is the only name by which this rebellion can be described. Has not Hirtius, who has gone away, sick as he is, called it a war? Has not young Caesar, young as he is, prompted to it by no one, undertaken it as a war? He repeats the words of a letter from Hirtius, which could only have been used in war. I have taken Claterna. Their cavalry has been put to flight. A battle has been fought. So many men have been killed. This is what you call peace. Then he speaks of other civil wars, which he says have grown from difference of opinion. Except that last, between Pompey and Caesar, as to which I will not speak. I have been ignorant of its cause, and have hated its ending. But in this war all men are of one opinion, who are worthy of the name of Romans. We are fighting for the temples of our gods, for our walls, our homes, for the abode of the Roman people, for their penates, their altars, their hearths, for the graves of their ancestors, and we are fighting only against Antony. Fufius Calenus tells us of peace, as though I, of all men, did not know that peace was a blessing. But tell me, Calenus, is slavery peace? He is very angry with Calenus. 
although he has called him his friend, he was in great wrath against him. I am fighting for Decimus, and you for Antony. I wish to preserve a Roman city. You wish to see it battered to the ground. Can you deny this, you who are creating all means of delays by which Decimus may be weakened and Antony made strong? I had consoled myself with this, he says, that when these ambassadors had been sent and had returned despised, and had told the Senate that not only had Antony refused to leave Gaul, but was besieging Mutina and would not let them even see Decimus, that then, in our passion and our rage, we should have gone forth, with our arms and our horses and our men, and at once have rescued our general. But we, since we have seen the audacity, the insolence and the pride of Antony, we have become only more cowardly than before. Then he gives his opinion about the amnesty. Let any of those who are now with Antony, but shall leave him before the Ides of March, and pass to the armies of the consuls, or of Decimus, or of young Caesar, be held to be free from reproach. If any should quit their ranks through their own will, let them be rewarded and honoured, as Hertius and Pansa, our consuls, may think proper. This was the eighth Philippic, and is perhaps the finest of them all. It does not contain the bitter invective of the second, but there is in it a true feeling of patriotic earnestness. The ninth also is very eloquent, though it is rather a paean sung on behalf of his friend Sulpicius, who in bad health had encountered the danger of the journey and had died in the effort, than one of these Philippics which are supposed to have been written and spoken with the view of demolishing Antony. It is a specimen of those funereal orations delivered on behalf of a citizen who had died in the service of his country, which used to be common among the Romans. The tenth is in praise of Marcus Junius Brutus. Were I to attempt to explain the situation of Brutus in Macedonia, and to say how he had come to fill it, I should be carried away from my purpose as to Cicero's life, and should be endeavouring to write the history of the time. My object is simply to illustrate the life of Cicero by such facts as we know. In the confusion which existed at the time, Brutus had obtained some advantages in Macedonia, and had recovered for himself the legions of which Caius Antonius had been in possession, and who was now a prisoner in his hands. At this time young Marcus Cicero was his lieutenant, and it is told how one of those legions had put themselves under his command. Brutus had at any rate written home letters to the Senate early in March, and Pansa had called the Senate together to receive them. Again he attacks Fufius Calenus, Pansa's father-in-law, who was the only man in the Senate bold enough to stand up against him, though there were doubtless many of those foot-senators, men who traversed the house backwards and forwards to give their votes, who were anxious to oppose him. He thanks Pansa for calling them so quickly, seeing that when they had parted yesterday they had not expected to be again so soon convoked. We may gather from this the existence of a practice of sending messengers round to the senators' houses to call them together. He praises Brutus for his courage and his patience. It is his object to convince his hearers, and through them the Romans of the day, that the cause of Antony is hopeless. Let us rise up and crush him. Let us all rise, and we shall certainly crush him. There is nothing so likely to attain success as a belief that the success has been already attained. From all sides men are running together to put out the flames which he has lighted. 
our veterans, following the example of young Caesar, have repudiated Antony and his attempts. The Legio Martia has blunted the edge of his rage, and the Legio Quarta has attacked him. Deserted by his own troops, he has broken through into Gaul, which he has found to be hostile to him with its arms, and opposed to him in spirit. The armies of Hirtius and of young Caesar are upon his trail, and now Panzer's levies have raised the heart of the city and of all Italy. He alone is our enemy, although he has along with him his brother Lucius, whom we all regret so dearly, whose loss we have been hardly able to endure. What wild beast do you know more abominable than that, or more monstrous, who seems to have been created, lest Mark Antony himself should be of all things the most vile? He concludes by proposing the thanks of the Senate to Brutus, and a resolution that Quintus Hortensius, who had held the province of Macedonia against Caius Antonius, should be left there in command. The two propositions were carried. As we read this, all appears to be prospering on behalf of the Republic. But if we turn to the suspected correspondence between Brutus and Cicero, we find a different state of things. And these letters, though we altogether doubt their authenticity, for their language is cold, formal, and un-Ciceronian, still were probably written by one who had access to those which Cicero had himself penned. As to what you write about wanting men and money, it is very difficult to give you advice. I do not see how you are to raise any except by borrowing it from the municipalities, in Macedonia, according to the decree of the Senate. As to men, I do not know what to propose. Pansa is so far from sparing men from his army that he begrudges those who go to you as volunteers. Some think that he wishes you to be less strong than you are, which, however, I do not suspect myself. A letter might fall into the hands of persons not intended to read it, and Cicero was forced to be on his guard in communicating his suspicions, Cicero or the pseudo-Cicero. In the next, Brutus is rebuked for having left Antony alive when Caesar was slain. Had not some god inspired Octavian, he says, we should have been altogether in the power of Antony, that base and abominable man. And you see how terrible is our contest with him. And he tries to awaken him to the necessity of severity. I see how much you delight in clemency. That is very well. But there is another place, another time, for clemency. The question for us is whether we shall any longer exist or be put out of the world. These, which are intended to represent his private fears, deal with the affairs of the day in a tone altogether different from that of his public speeches. Doubt, anxiety, occasionally almost despair, are expressed in them. But not the less does he thunder on in the Senate aware that to attain success he must appear to have obtained it. The eleventh Philippic was occasioned by the news which had arrived in Rome of the death of Trebonius. Trebonius had been surprised in Smyrna by a stratagem as to which alone no disgrace would have fallen on Dolabella had he not followed up his success by killing Trebonius. How far the bloody cruelty of which we have the account in Cicero's words was in truth executed it is now impossible to say. The Greek historian Appian gives us none of these horrors, but simply intimates that Trebonius, having been taken in the snare, had his head cut off. That Cicero believed the story is probable. 
it is told against his son-in-law, of whom he had hitherto spoken favourably, he would not have spoken against the man except on conviction. Dolabella was immediately declared an enemy to the Republic. Cicero inveighs against him with all his force, and says that such as Dolabella is, he has been made by the cruelty of Antony. But he goes on to philosophize and declare how much more miserable than Trebonius was Dolabella himself, who is so base that from his childhood those things had been a delight to him which have been held as disgraceful by other children. Then he turns to the question which is in dispute, whether Brutus should be left in command of Macedonia, and Cassius of Syria, Cassius was now on his way to avenge the death of Trebonius, or whether other noble Romans, Publius Servilius, for instance, or that Hirtius and Pansa, the two consuls, when they can be spared from Italy, shall be sent there. It is necessary here to read between the lines. The going of the consuls would mean the withdrawing of the troops from Italy, and would leave Rome open to the Caesarian faction. At present Decimus and Cicero, and whoever else there might be loyal to the Republic, had to fight by the assistance of other forces than their own. Hirtius and Pansa were constrained to take the part of the Republic by Cicero's eloquence, and by the action of those senators who felt themselves compelled to obey Cicero. But they did not object to send the consuls away, and the consular allegiance, under the plea of saving the provinces. This they were willing enough to do, with the real object of delivering Italy over to those who were Cicero's enemies, but were not theirs. All this Cicero understood, and in conducting the contest had to be on his guard not only against the soldiers of Antony, but against the senators also who were supposed to be his own friends, but whose hearts were intent on having back some Caesar to preserve for them their privileges. Cicero in this matter talked some nonsense. By what right, by what law, he asks, shall Cassius go to Syria? by that law which Jupiter sanctioned when he ordained that all things good for the Republic should be just and legal. For neither had Brutus a right to establish himself in Macedonia as proconsul, nor Cassius in Syria. This reference to Jupiter was a begging of the question with a vengeance. But it was perhaps necessary in a time of such confusion to assume some pretext of legality, let it be ever so poor. Nothing could now be done in true obedience to the laws. The triumvirate, with Caesar at its head, had finally trodden down all law. And yet every one was clamouring for legal rights. Then he sings the praises of Cassius, but declares that he does not dare to give him credit in that place for the greatest deed he had done. He means, of course, the murder of Caesar. Paterculus tells us that all these things were decreed by the Senate, but he is wrong. The decree of the Senate went against Cicero, and on the next day, amidst much tumult, he addressed himself to the people on the subject. This he did in opposition to Pansa, who endeavoured to hinder him from speaking in the forum, and to Servilia, the mother-in-law of Cassius, who was afraid lest her son-in-law should encounter the anger of the consuls. He went so far as to tell the people that Cassius would not obey the Senate, but would take upon himself on such an emergency to act as best he could for the Republic. There was no moment in this stirring year, none, I think, during Cicero's life, in which he behaved with greater courage than now 
in appealing from the Senate to the people, and in the hardihood with which he declared that the Senate's decree should be held as going for nothing. Before the time came in which it could be carried out, both Hirtius and Pansa were dead. They had fallen in relieving Decimus at Mutina. His address on this occasion to the people was not made public, and has not been preserved. Then there came up the question of a second embassy, to which Cicero at first acceded. He was induced to do so, as he says, by news which had arrived of altered circumstances on Antony's part. Calenus and Piso had given the Senate to understand that Antony was desirous of peace. Cicero had therefore assented, and had agreed to be one of the deputation. The twelfth Philippic was spoken with the object of showing that no such embassy should be sent. Cicero's condition at this period was most peculiar and most perilous. The Senate would not altogether oppose his efforts, but they hated them. They feared that if Antony should succeed, they who had opposed Antony would be ruined. Those among them who were the boldest openly reproached Cicero with the danger which they were made to incur in fighting his battles. To be rid of Cicero was their desire and their difficulty. He had agreed to go on this embassy, who can say for what motives. To him it would be a mission of especial peril. It was one from which he could hardly hope ever to come back alive. It may be that he had agreed to go with his life in his hand, and to let them know that he, at any rate, had been willing to die for the Republic. It may be that he had heard of some altered circumstances. But he changed his mind, and resolved that he would not go, unless driven forth by the Senate. There seems to have been a manifest attempt to get him out of Rome, and send him where he might have his throat cut. But he declined. And this is the speech in which he did so. It is impossible, says the French critic, speaking of the twelfth Philippic, to surround the word I fear with more imposing oratorical arguments. It has not occurred to him that Cicero may have thought that he might even yet do something better with the lees and dregs of his life than throw them away by thus falling into a trap. Nothing is so common to men as to fear to die, and nothing more necessary or men would soon cease to live. To fear death more than ignominy is the disgrace, a truth which the French critic does not seem to have recognised when he twits the memory of Cicero with his scornful sneer, J'ai peur. Did it occur to the French critic to ask himself for what purpose should Cicero go to Antony's camp, where he would probably be murdered, and by doing so favour the views of his own enemies in Rome? The deputation was not sent, but in lieu of the deputation, Pansa, the remaining consul, led his legions out of Rome at the beginning of April. Side note, B.C. 43, Aetat 64 Lepidus, who was proconsul in Gaul and northern Spain, wrote a letter at this time to the Senate, recommending them to make peace with Antony. Cicero, in his thirteenth Philippic, shows how futile such a peace would be. That Lepidus was a vain, inconstant man, looking simply to his own advantage in the side which he might choose, is now understood. But when this letter was received, he was supposed to have much weight in Rome. He had, however, given some offence to the Senate, not having acknowledged all the honours which had been paid to him. The advice had been rejected, and Cicero shows how unfit the man was to give it. This, however, he still does with complimentary phrases, 
though from a letter written by him to Lepidus about this time, the nature of his feeling towards a man is declared. You would have done better, in my judgment, if you had left alone this attempt at making peace, which approves itself neither to the Senate, nor to the people, nor to any good man. When we remember the ordinary terms of Roman letter-writing, we must acknowledge that this was a plain and not very civil attempt to silence Lepidus. He then goes on in the Philippic to read a letter which Antony had sent to Hirtius and to young Caesar, and which they had sent on to the Senate. The letter is sufficiently bold and abusive, throwing it in their teeth that they would rather punish the murderer of Trebonius than those of Caesar. Cicero does this with some wit, but we feel compelled to observe that as much is to be said on the one side as on the other. Brutus, Cassius, with Trebonius and others, had killed Caesar. Dolabella, perhaps with circumstances of great cruelty, had killed Trebonius. Cicero had again and again expressed his sorrow that Antony had been spared when Caesar was killed. We have to go back before the first slaughter to resolve who was right and who was wrong, and even afterwards can only take the doings of each in that direction as part of the internecine feud. Experience has since explained to us the results of introducing bloodshed into such quarrels. The laws which recognise war are and were acknowledged. But when A kills B, because he thinks B to have done evil, A can no longer complain of murder. And Cicero's criticism is somewhat puerile. And thou, boy, Antony had said in addressing Octavian, et te puer, you shall find him to be a man by and by, says Cicero. Antony's Latin is not Ciceronian. Utrum sit elegantius, he asks, putting some further question about Caesar and Trebonius. As if there could be anything elegant in this war, demands Cicero. He goes through the letter in the same way, turning Antony into ridicule, in a manner which must have riveted in the heart of Fulvia, Antony's wife who was in Rome, her desire to have that bitter speaking tongue torn out of his mouth. Such was the thirteenth Philippic. On the 21st of April was spoken the 14th and the last. Pansa, early in the morning, had left Rome and marched towards Mutina with the intention of relieving Decimus. Antony, who was then besieging Mutina after such a fashion as to prevent all egress or ingress, and had all but brought Decimus to starvation, finding himself about to be besieged, put his troops into motion and attacked those who were attacking him. There was fought the battle in which Antony was beaten, and Pansa, one of the consuls, so wounded that he perished soon afterwards. Antony retreated to his camp, but was again attacked by Hirtius and Octavian, and by Decimus, who sallied out of the town. He was routed and fled, but Hirtius was killed in the battle. Suetonius tells us that in his time a rumour was abroad that Augustus, then Octavian, had himself killed Hirtius with his own hands in the fight, Hirtius having been his fellow-general and fighting on the same side, and that he had paid Glyco, Panza's doctor, to poison him while dressing his wounds. Tacitus had already made the story known. It is worth repeating here only as showing the sort of conduct which a grave historian and a worthy biographer were not ashamed to attribute to the favourite emperor of Rome. It was on the receipt of the news in Rome of the first battle, but before the second had been fought, 
that the last Philippic was spoken. Pansa was not known to have been mortally wounded, nor Hertius killed, nor was it known that Decimus had been relieved. But it was understood that Antony had received a check. Servilius had proposed a supplication, and had suggested that they should put away their saga, and go back to their usual attire. The sagum was a common military cloak, which the early Romans wore instead of the toga, when they went out to war. In later days, when the definition between a soldier and a civilian became more complete, they who were left at home wore the sagum in token of their military feelings when the Republic was fighting its battles near at Rome. I do not suppose that when Crassus was in Parthia, or Caesar in Gaul, the sagum was worn. It was not exactly known when the distant battles were being fought. But Cicero had taken care that the sagum should be properly worn, and had even put it on himself, to do which, as a consular, was not required of him. Servilius now proposed that they should leave off their cloaks, having obtained a victory. But Cicero would not permit it. Decimus, he says, has not been relieved, and they had taken to their cloaks as showing their determination to succour their general in his distress. And he is discontented with the language used. You have not even yet called Antony a public enemy. Then he again lashes out against the horror of Antony's proceedings. He is waging a war, a war too dreadful to be spoken of, against four Roman consuls. He means Hertius and Panza, who were already consuls, and in truth already dead, and Decimus and Plancus, who were designated as consuls for the next year. Plancus, however, joined his legions afterwards with those of Antony, and assisted in establishing the second triumvirate. Rushing from one scene of slaughter to another, he causes wherever he goes misery, desolation, bloodshed, and agony. The language is so fine that it is worth our while to see the words. Footnote, Philippic 14.3 Omnibus, quam quam ruit ipse suis cladibus pestem, vastitatem, cruciatem, tormenta denuntiat. End of footnote. Is he not responsible for the horrors of Dolabella? What he would do in Rome, were it not for the protection of Jupiter, may be seen from the miseries which his brother has inflicted on those poor men of Parma, that Lucius whom all men hate, and the gods too would hate if they hated as they ought. In what city was Hannibal as cruel as Antony at Parma? And shall we not call him an enemy? Servilius had asked for a supplication, but had only asked for one of moderate length, and Servilius had not called the generals imperatores. Who should be so called, but they who have been valiant, and lucky, and successful? Cicero forgets the meaning of the title, and that even Bibulus had been called imperator in Syria. Here he runs off from his subject, and at some length praises himself, it seems that Rome was in a tumult at the time, and that Antony's enemies did all they could to support him, and also to turn his head. He had been carried into the senate-house in triumph, and had been thanked by the whole city. After lauding the different generals, and calling them all imperatores, he desires the senate to decree them a supplication for fifty days. Fifty days are to be devoted to thanksgiving to the gods, though it had already been declared how very little they have done for which to be thankful, as Decimus had not yet been liberated. Fifty days are granted for the Battle of Mutina, which as yet was supposed to have been but half fought. Footnote 
when we hear the term supplicatio first mentioned in Livy, one day was granted. It had grown to twenty when the gods were thanked for the victory over Vercingetorix. Now for this half-finished affair, fifty was hardly enough. When the time was over, Antony and Lepidus had joined their forces triumphantly. Panther and Hirtius were dead, and Decimus Brutus had fled and had probably been murdered. Nothing increases so out of proportion to the occasion as the granting of honours. Stars, when they fall in showers, pale their brilliancy, and turn at last to no more than a cloud of dust. Honours are soon robbed of all their honour, when once the first step downwards has been taken. The decree was passed, and Cicero finished his last speech on so poor an occasion. But though the thing itself then done be small and trivial to us now, it was completed in magnificent language. Footnote. Philippics 14.12 O fortunata mors, quae naturae debita, pro patria est potissimum reddita. End of footnote. The passage of which I give the first words below is very fine in the original, though it does not well bear translation. Thus he ended his fourteenth Philippic, and the silver tongue which had charmed Rome so often was silent for ever. We at least have no record of any further speech, nor, as I think, did he again take the labour of putting into words which should thrill through all who heard them, not the thoughts, but the passionate feelings of the moment. I will venture to quote from a contemporary his praise of the Philippics. Mr. Forsyth says, Nothing can exceed the beauty of the language, the rhythmical flow of the periods, and the harmony of the style. The structure of the Latin language which enables the speaker or writer to collocate his words, not, as in English, merely according to the order of thought, but in the manner best calculated to produce effect, too often baffles the power of the translator, who seeks to give the force of the passage without altering the arrangement. Often again, as is the case with all attempts to present the thoughts of the ancient in a modern dress, a periphrasis must be used to explain the meaning of an idea which was instantly caught by the Greek or Roman ear. Many allusions which flashed like lightning upon the minds of the senators must be explained in a parenthesis, and many a home-thrust and caustic sarcasm are now deprived of their sting, which pierced sharply at the moment of their utterance some twenty centuries ago. But with all such disadvantages I hope that even the English reader will be able to recognise in these speeches something of the grandeur of the old Roman eloquence. The noble passages in which Cicero strove to force his countrymen for very shame to emulate the heroic virtues of their forefathers, and urged them to brave every danger and welcome death rather than slavery in the last struggle for freedom, are radiant with a glory which not even a translation can destroy and it is impossible not to admire the genius of the orator, whose words did more than armies towards recovering the lost liberty of Rome. His words did more than armies, but neither could do anything lasting for the Republic. What was one honest man among so many? We remember Mommsen's verdict. On the Roman oligarchy of this period, no judgment can be passed save one of inexorable and remorseless condemnation. 
the further we see into the facts of roman history in our endeavours to read the life of cicero the more apparent becomes its truth but cicero though he saw far towards it never altogether acknowledged it in this consists the charm of his character though at the same time the weakness of his political aspirations his weakness because he was vain enough to imagine that he could talk men back from their fish-ponds its charm because he was able through it all to believe in honesty the more hopeless became the cause the sweeter the more impassioned the more divine became his language he tuned his notes to still higher pitches of melody and thought that thus he could bring back public virtue often in these philippics the matter is small enough the men he has to praise are so little and antony does not loom large enough in history to have merited from Cicero so great a meed of vituperation. Nor is the abuse all true, in attributing to him motives so low. But Cicero was true through it all, anxious, all on fire with anxiety, to induce those who heard him to send men to fight the battles to which he knew them in their hearts to be opposed. The courage, the persistency, and the skill shown in the attempt were marvellous. They could not have succeeded, but they seem almost to have done so. I have said that he was one honest man among many. Brutus was honest in his patriotism, and Cassius and all the conspirators. I do not doubt that Caesar was killed from a true desire to restore the Roman Republic. They desired to restore a thing that was in itself evil, the evils of which had induced Caesar to see that he might make himself its master but Cicero had conceived a republic in his own mind, not utopian, altogether human and rational, a republic which he believed to have been that of Scipio, of Marcellus and Lilius, a republic which should do nothing for him but require his assistance, in which the people should vote and the oligarchs rule in accordance with the established laws. Peace and ease, prosperity and protection it would be for the Rome of his dream to bestow upon the provinces. Law and order, education and intelligence it would be for her rulers to bestow upon Rome. In desiring this he was the one honest man among many. In accordance with that theory he had lived, and I claim for him that he had never departed from it. In his latter days, when the final struggle came, when there had arisen for him the chance of Caesar's death, when Antony was his chief enemy, when he found himself in Rome with authority sufficient to control legions, when the young Caesar had not shown, probably had not made, his plans, when Lepidus and Plancus and Pollio still might prove themselves at last true men, he was once again alive with his dream. There might yet be again a Scipio, or a Cicero as good as Scipio in the Republic, one who might have lived as gloriously, and die not amidst the jealousies, but with the love of his countrymen. It was not to be. Looking back at it now, we wonder that he should have dared to hope for it. But it is to the presence within gallant bosoms of hope still springing, though almost forlorn, of hope which has in its existence been marvellous, that the world is indebted for the most beneficial enterprises. It was not given to Cicero to stem the tide and to prevent the evil coming of the Caesars, but still the nature of the life he had led, the dreams of a pure republic, 
those aspirations after liberty have not altogether perished. We have, at any rate, the record of the great endeavours which he made. Nothing can have been worse managed than the victory at Mutina. The two consuls were both killed, but that, it may be said, was the chance of war. Antony, with all his cavalry, was allowed to escape eastward towards the Cottian Alps. Decimus Brutus seems to have shown himself deficient in all the qualities of a general, except that power of endurance which can hold a town with little or no provision. He wrote to Cicero, saying that he would follow Antony. He makes a promise that Antony shall not be allowed to remain in Italy. He beseeches Cicero to write to that windy fellow Lepidus to prevent him from joining the enemy. Lepidus will never do what is right, unless made to do so by Cicero. As to Plancus, Decimus has his doubts, but he thinks that Plancus will be true to the Republic, now that Antony is beaten. In his next letter he speaks of the great confusion which has come among them from the death of the two consuls. He declares also how great has been Antony's energy in already recruiting his army. He has opened all the prisons and workhouses, and taken the men he found there. Ventidius has joined him with his army, and he still fears Lepidus. And young Caesar, who is supposed to be on their side, will obey no one, and can make none obey him. He, Decimus, cannot feed his men. He has spent all his own money, and his friends. How is he to support seven legions? On the next day he writes again, and is still afraid of Plancus, and of Lepidus, and of Pollio. And he bids Cicero look after his good name. Stop the evil tongues of men, if you can. A few days afterwards Cicero writes him a letter, which he can hardly have liked to receive. What business had Brutus to think the Senate cowardly? Who can be afraid of Antony conquered, who did not fear him in his strength? How should Lepidus doubt now, when the victory had been declared for the Republic? Though Antony may have collected together the scrapings of the jails, Decimus is not to forget that he, Decimus, has the whole Roman people at his back. Cicero was probably right to encourage the general, and to endeavour to fill him with hope. To make a man victorious you should teach him to believe in victory. But Decimus knew the nature of the troops around him, and was aware that every soldier was so imbued with an idea of the power of Caesar, that, though Caesar was dead, they could fight with only half a heart against soldiers who had been in his armies. The name and authority and high office of the two consuls had done something with them, and young Caesar had been with the consuls. But both the consuls had been killed, which was in itself ominous, and Antony was still full of hope, and young Caesar was not there, and Decimus was unpopular with the men. It was of no use that Cicero should write with lofty ideas and speak of the spirit of the Senate. Antony had received a severe check, but the feeling of military rule which Caesar had engendered was still there, and soldiers who would obey their officers were not going to submit themselves to votes of the people. Cicero, in the meantime, had his letters passing daily between himself and the camps, thinking to make up by the energy of his pen for the weakness of his party. Lepidus sends him an account of his movements on the Rhone, declaring how he was anxious to surround Antony. Lepidus was already meditating his surrender. I ask from you, my Cicero, 
that if you have seen with what zeal I have in former times served the Republic, you should look for conduct equal to it or surpassing it for the future, and that you should think me the more worthy of your protection, the higher are my deserts. He was already, when writing that letter, in treaty with Antony. Plancus writes to him at the same time, apologising for his conduct in joining Lepidus. It was a service of great danger for him, Plancus, but it was necessary for Lepidus that this should be done. We are inclined to doubt them all, knowing whither they were tending. Lepidus was false from the beginning. Plancus doubted for a while, and then yielded himself. The reader, I think, will have had no hope for Cicero and the Republic, since the two consuls were killed. But as he comes upon the letters which passed between Cicero and the armies, he will have been altogether disheartened. End of chapter 9